Section 5 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nan Dodge. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 1, Chapter 4. Each year the family fell farther apart. Shortly after the interview with Dr. Rankin, Julie took his advice, and Georgie was sent to a boarding school at Bristol. But though the school was only decided upon after much prayer and careful inquiry, the girl returned for her holidays less manageable at the end of every term. Both Julie's daughters had derived from her in full force the capacity for ecstasy, but she seemed powerless to direct their energies and with increasing grief she saw her prayers apparently unanswered. Her faith was sorely tried, and often she wept in secret. But she always renewed the attack, and with a peculiar obstinacy, maddening to them, attempted to force her vision on the children. Once they had been ready to drink in their mother's words as the essence of truth, and she had flashed veritable heaven at her babes from her apocalyptic eyes. Now it needed all her courage to maintain her beliefs in the face of their entrenched hostility. Also Julie failed them socially, and the girls felt this more than they knew. They were no longer invited to Aunt Georgina's. Soon they hardly went anywhere. Sholto's acquaintances dropped off one by one, and most of Julie's friends in the Lord were either freakish or out at elbow so that Joanna came to think that heaven must have a predilection for ill-looking oddities. Some of them turned out to be rogues as well. One, a Negro revivalist to whom Julie's efforts had opened two Glasgow pulpits, was discovered to be a bigamist on a brilliant scale. Another, a Polish-American Jew who had paid long visits to them in Kalesi Street and addressed many drawing-room meetings there, absconded with the money collected for the establishment of a Hebrew mission church in New York. Even the more deserving were feeble creatures in any earthly sense, and Julie herself sometimes mourned the days of her youth when God's people made a better show in the world of mammon. She never put down the change to her own growing eccentricity. Though always perfectly cleanly and carefully in detail, she was dressing herself with increasing dowdiness and she sorely grudged herself a new garment. Her income was strained by the children's growing needs, but she nonetheless continued, as Sholto had done, to set aside one-tenth of it for the Lord, and never did she refuse an appeal for help, whether made to her purse, her time, or her strength. She was loved by the poor, but Joanna and Georgie, just as they would have given all the spiritual qualities of their home for material graciousness with gladly have exchanged their mother's unselfishness for dignity and tact. It was therefore natural that both the girls should turn for help to the fine arts. It was a misfortune that neither was greatly gifted, but Georgie at any rate had no hesitation in accepting her own enthusiasm as marked talent, if not genius. The only thing she was uncertain about was the field in which this talent was to have play. She had thought of writing, and once actually started a novel in which Mr. Barr, the organist of St. Jude's, with whom both she and Joanna were in love, was to be saved from his unfortunate weakness for the bottle 
by a heroine remarkably like Georgie herself in everything except appearance. But in the second chapter, unexpected difficulties arose, and at the same time Georgie heard Madame Neruda play at one of Sir Charles Halley's concerts. From that day the girl decided that music was her natural means of expression, and the violin her instrument. It was dreadful to think how much time she had already wasted over the piano. So Georgie was given violin lessons at the school in Bristol, and when at nineteen she came home for good she wandered from teacher to teacher, much as her mother wandered from church to church. Each time she meditated a change there were the best reasons for condemning her present instructor, and before very long it came to this, that no one in Glasgow could give her precisely what she needed. There was a man in Dresden, she was certain that if she could only go to Dresden. But, dear, you seemed to be getting on so nicely, Julie pleaded, when Germany was first mentioned. Mrs. Boyd was charmed with the way you played simple avoue the other day, at the canal boatman's PSA. Mrs. Boyd, cried Georgie in loud scorn, what does Mrs. Boyd know about music? She would like simple avoue, and that's exactly what I'm trying to tell you. Simple avoue is the kind of piece Miss Findlay gives to all her pupils, because she thinks it will please their friends to hear them play it in the drawing-room at night, because it's toony. Don't you see that if I'm ever to do anything with my violin, anything real, I must go somewhere where they take music seriously. This discussion, one of many, happened one Sunday evening in spring. Julie and her daughters were returning after church from a walk along the great western road, and Joanna, seeking a refuge from the distress by her side, found it in the beauty of the world about her. For the great western road at sunset on a fine Sunday is a romantic highway. Once a stranger had stopped Joanna there, and sweeping off his hat had asked in broken English how soon, continuing westwards, he should get to the sea. The question, though geographically astonishing, gave some expression of the magnanimous charm of the road. Now troops of churchgoers, their faces illuminated by the glow on the horizon, sauntered westwards, and others with their faces in the shadow returned to the town. Innumerable couples, highland servants, chattering loudly in Gaelic, strings of very young girls in their Sabbath finery, young men with buttonholes and whirling canes who eyed the girls as they passed, all used the whole breadth of the road for walking, and only moved aside deliberately to make way for a jogging Sunday horse-cart. Joanna, steeping her mind in vague dreams, tried not to hear what Georgie and her mother were saying but the argument continued even after they had got home and were waiting in the parlor for supper. Joanna's silence was taken for granted, and she sat by the window looking out. She still tried not to listen, though it was harder indoors. "'But you said only the other day, dear,' it was the pained yet patient mother's voice speaking, "'that Miss Findlay was a splendid teacher and thought so highly of you.' Besides, poor thing, you know her circumstances, and what the loss of a pupil means to her, quite apart from the hurt to her feelings. From the window now, Joanna was watching two pigeons, burnished on their high perch by the hidden sunset. They sat on the ledge of a house opposite, one motionless as a carved bird, the other making his toilette, 
With gentle yet precise movements, the male arranged his breast and back feathers, unfolded, folded, and refolded his wings, and when at length all was to his liking, he sidled caressingly up to his mate. "'Of course,' shouted Georgie, "'if you were going to sacrifice my career to charity.' At that word, as at a signal, both pigeons took flight. Joanna followed their swift passage across the clear cube of sky, then, sighing, turned to face the dark interior. Georgie had her way and went to Dresden. The photographs of Joachim and Neruda vanished from the bedroom mantelpiece. The motto, Genius consists in an infinite capacity for taking pains, which had been pinned up also, went along with them in Georgie's trunk. At first the family felt a strange blank in the mornings, no longer being awakened by the thin scrape of exercises in the third position. Though Georgie did not realize it, her victory was due not so much to her own forcefulness as to her mother's desire that she should be provided with the means of earning her own livelihood. Secretly, Julie disbelieved in Georgie's dreams of the concert platform, but if the girl really loved music, she would be the better equipped for having studied abroad. Matrimony, in Julie's eyes, was not a thing to be sought for its own sake, and if her daughters neither married nor felt the call to be missionaries, they would have to do something for themselves. Sholto's estate, when divested of his legacies to charity, had not amounted to more than seven thousand pounds, and when this should come at Julie's death to be divided equally between the four children, the portions would not be large. With the same practical end in view, Joanna was allowed to forsake her high school for the school of art when she was barely seventeen, and not yet in the sixth form. For some time it had been understood at home that Joanna should become an artist. She was neat-figured. Her mother always counted on her to print the invitations and decorate the collection card for the monthly Jewish meeting held in the drawing-room and at school she generally carried off a second prize for drawing. What sort of an artist she wanted to become she did not yet know, but that could be decided later. Another change at this time was the coming of Mabel to Kalesi Street. Mabel, faced even more urgently than her cousins by the necessity of earning a living, had decided to become a hospital nurse, and before starting her regular training she came to spend a winter of study in Glasgow. Julie told herself that this was a happy arrangement for Joanna during Georgie's absence. The two boys, now fourteen and twelve, lived apart in a world of their own. School claimed them all day and lessons most of the evening, and on Saturdays they went off to football, returning mud-coated and arguing about half-backs and scrums, fouls and forwards. But in reality it was Julie herself, in dire need of sympathy, who fastened on Mabel when she came. Mabel was nothing if not sympathetic, and her aunt poured into her ready ears much that had better have remained unspoken, while in return Mabel imparted many of the confidences she had at various times received from Georgie and Joanna. Julie, already admiring her niece's choice of a profession, was impressed by a maturity in the girl quite lacking in her own daughter's. She attributed it to the fact that Mabel was an orphan, and she rejoiced in the good influence Mabel was bound to exercise over Joanna, whose bedroom she was to share. 
The remarkable thing was that Joanna, receptive as she was at this time, remained immune to this same influence. Seven years earlier, both she and Georgie had taken a passive pleasure in Mabel's fertile invention in the field of childish indecencies, but in their later girlhood they had provided a disappointing market for her primitive anecdotes. Georgie, in fact, had warned her sister that there were others like their cousin at the school in Bristol, and that all that kind of thing was detestable as one grew older. And now Mabel, at nineteen, returning to the charge with a smattering of physiology, a great store of bald tales and some grotesque confidences of the hospital, found Joanna unresponsive. It was not that Joanna made any prudish objections. In a sense, she even listened. But while she continued, as in childhood, to hoard the correct and incorrect together in the dark chambers of her mind, she by nature ignored all that made the telling savory to Mabel. If she was still amazingly ignorant about life, it was not exactly from lack of information. At Duntarvie she had been in close touch with nature, and Glasgow she had been allowed to play in the streets. Julie was no believer in ignorance for young people. She had even approached Joanna once or twice with an attempt at definite enlightenment. But Joanna had shied so badly and so persistently that at length she was left to herself. She would not have it that her very considerable knowledge of natural processes should in any real way affect the love fantasy in which she now had her being. Constantly and to the full she indulged herself in the drug habit of maidenhood, but her waking dreams were quite as innocent as they were sensuous. What she learned from Mabel, therefore, was kept jealously shrouded. It was no more true to her than it was true that members of the Young Men's Christian Association, because they were men, were potential lovers. Yet all the time a lover was what she unceasingly sought, in the streets, at church, on tram-cars and steamers, at concerts, even at religious meetings. Joanna was forever seeking faces that would suit the hero's part in those dreams of which the constant heroine was herself. In any kind of assemblage there was sure to be one such face at least, and when she had found it she knew a dozen ways by which to induce immediate delirium. She need only, for instance, recall with closed eyes a moonlight cruise on the Clyde the midsummer before. The paddle steamer loaded with embracing lovers had churned phosphorescently through the black lochs. The band had played dance music. At intervals the spray of fainting rockets had been shaken down the dark sky. No one seeing her aloof eyes and still face would have guessed at the eagerness of the girl's search. Young men feared her, knowing she hardly saw them. Yet at eighteen, a little weary of fruitless emotion, a little dream-sick, the conviction had begun to force itself on Joanna that she was without attraction. For the past ten years she had lavished unreciprocated passion on individuals of both sexes. She had worshipped Gerald Byrd, had longed to reclaim the boozing organist of St. Jude's, had trembled in the presence of her geography teacher at the high school, a plain middle-aged woman with mysterious eyes, and these were but three out of many. But never yet, so far as Joanna knew, had she figured for an instant in the dreams of another human being, and she was beginning to give up hope. 
Clearly she foresaw a dismal stretch of life to an unloved old age. End of chapter 4